Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter. I am your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to put your seatbelts on because we're talking with Miss Linda Bernardi, the author of Provoke. Culture of Disruption is the only hope for innovation as our in-studio guests this week on Leadership with Darrell Gunter. Linda, welcome to the program. Well, hello, and thank you so much, Darrell, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I'm very excited to have you on our program because you are talking about innovation, which I love to talk about innovation. I love to talk about disruption, and I love to talk about things on a global basis and provoke. I love you know, the, the, the provoke with the red V in the middle. So before we jump into provoke, um, could you please share with our audience the highlights of your education career and your background? Sure. Oh, my pleasure. Actually, there's a story with um, the title of the book. So remind me if I forget to talk about it, because it, it really ties into the concept of disruption. So we'll just park that on the side. But um, my background um, and my graduate degree is in mathematics and statistics. I've always been very passionate about data, even before we had terms for it like big data. And um, right after graduate school at UCLA, I joined Bolt, Granick and Newman, short BBN, which was one of the longer lasting think tanks in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Both Brannick and Newman were three MIT professors that started a company that went on for about 55 years. And effectively, we were a think tank where government and commercial would come to us to solve really difficult problems. And these problems didn't have solutions. One of the problems was where the Internet came from. And the sort of the forefathers of Internet were BBNers. We called ourselves BBNers to the first router uh, on a network switch to the first of many things. And so my first job out of graduate school was in an environment where we built things that didn't exist. So by nature, we innovated, right? So I grew up my first 10 years of my career in an environment that uh, naturally disinnovated, and we weren't really worried about disruption because everything we built was brand new. We built the first data analysis product, the first voice recognition product, the first of so many things um, that it was just a brilliant place to be in. And that's kind of where I grew up. After um, BBN, I started my own company, Connectera, again in Cambridge, Mass., in 2001. And the idea was to deploy RFID, radio frequency identification, passive RFID, which are these tiny hair-like things that you can put on boxes. Now, of course, everybody knows because when you go through all the sort of toll booths, you know how this opens up, it's RFID. But in 2001, it was very disruptive. People didn't believe that you could put these things on, on anything. And imagine if it were on a pharmaceutical product that you have to recall or a package of meat that was bad you had to recall. We could trace and track the location of any item or entity. And we built the middleware to connect radio frequency identification, RFID, and connect it into big companies like the FedEx and UPS and Procter and & Gamble. And, and we started with a lot of skepticism because, remember, RFID directly fights the barcode battle. So every time you go through the grocery store and this completely unnecessary step of wanding each of your items, which is absolutely not necessary because if there was an RFID tag, you'd be out in your car and already making dinner before standing in line. So 
uh, it was hugely disruptive because barcode was working, the systems were in place, and uh, really sort of the genesis for me of reaction to disruption started from there. Well, five years later, we had uh, a lot of customers adopting our middleware. We had started a standards organization and finally sold the company. After that, I started investing in startup companies, advising, getting on boards of directors, and um, about three years ago, joined IBM as Chief Innovation Officer for IoT and Cloud. And um, IoT, or Internet of Things for our listeners, is basically, if you go to Wikipedia, it ties itself back to RFID. And it says the genesis of IoT was RFID. And IoT is all about data because it's things connected to things that generate data. Hence, back to the original point that it's all about data, and that's what my background is. And um, I left IBM a few months ago and got very involved in several of the areas that are of great interest, like artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, cognitive. And um, now in the midst of finalizing my second book um, that I'm co-writing with two co-authors, which is deeply discussing the topic of IoT and the future connected world. And uh, from you know, as far as me, my background, I'm also, I've been very involved in women in tech, um, the Anita Borg Institute, the Grace Hopper Celebration. If you track me down, you'll sort of see me as founder of many of these uh, organizations, deeply engaged in promoting women in tech. So that's just a little bit about me. That is awesome. That is really, really awesome. I mean, to, to, to talk about the RFID way back when, wow, that's, that's, that's really dynamic that you were part of that group. So provoke. When, when, you know, when you read the title, it provokes you. <laughs> and then the culture of disruption is the only hope for innovation. How did you come about this title for this book? And why? Well, well so, so let me first point out the thing I mentioned at the very beginning, which is publishers had a real difficulty with this because they said, you know, provoke creates this discomfort in, in the customer and the reader because, of course, a lot of my clients are major corporations. And then they said, culture of disruption, my God, that sounds like a revolution. That also adds a lot of discomfort. Now you've got provoke with this other thing. It's doubly uncomfortable. And that's when I realized I was absolutely on to the right thing. So the word came from, remember that I wrote, I published my book in uh, December of 2011. And I've been engaged in disruptive technologies for at least 15 years. Fundamentally, disruptive means you're doing something differently. But I wanted something to jolt. So the title came from, I wanted really something to jolt the reader to recognize um, that if you think about companies that chose not to be disrupted, and I'll name a few and I'll leave it up to you and our listeners to connect the dots, right? Motorola, Nokia, Blackberry, Xerox, Kodak, Right? Why am I in the obituary section? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Because these are the companies that absolutely didn't believe they should change. They believed they had the market. They reacted to disruption in a negative way, even when the market movement was completely going in direction A. They chose to stay on their path. Sometimes it's fear of loss of market share. We can discuss more of the details, but effectively the title was to really jolt the leader, the reader to say, do you want to remain one of those companies or do you want to become a Google, an Amazon, an Apple, 
right? Companies that are constantly reinventing themselves, where disruption is part of their DNA. Culture of disruption came about because I'm very frustrated, have been and continue to be frustrated about the incredible talent that we have in big companies, right? So if you take HP as an example, HP has brilliant people within HP. But now if I ask you, Durrell, tell me the last product that HP introduced to the market, you're going to scratch your head and maybe tell me a printer? Well, that's a 40-year-old product. So what happens to brilliant people within companies? Why is it that a startup can come up with a crazy idea, get huge funding, and build a technology, but thousands, if not tens of thousands within big companies, these people are unable to move the needle. So I wanted to create a culture, a movement. Over the last four years, as I've spoken, given gift, you know, book talks about Provoke around the world, and this is anywhere from South Africa to Asia to Middle East to Europe to South America, um, I have a card, which is your culture of disruption card. And it's like your ACLU card. It is what you believe in, what you believe in to be right. And I want to create the movement and the awakening in the people to feel that just because they're, within, they're in a company, they don't stop thinking and being creative. Why they were hired within a company was exactly because they are creative. But we bring them into companies and then we stop them from being creative. We conform them. And that's really where innovation stops. That's where disruption stops. So Provoke really intends to push the button on disruption, and that can only happen by people, and that's really what the culture of disruption is. And what are the key principles of having a culture of disruption moving towards a positive goal? So first of all, I always have to make this clarification that disruption is different than being disruptive, right? Uh, disruption is about changing the way you do things. So if you take the mobile phone concept, there was a fu- it was a time that a mobile phone was just a mobile phone, right? You used it to make phone calls. And then somebody came along and said, what if I just put some applications on there and make it do other things? And then somebody else came and said, what if I put a camera in my phone? Now, back, go back about maybe seven, eight years, Right. Did you ever think the thing you put on your ear is also what you take a photo? Did it make sense to you at that point, right? So these are, the, these are sort of the disruptions. So it's not disruptive. Rather, it's just looking at things differently. So some of the key top-level elements of companies being disruptive, one is the leadership has to be visionary. And I'm not talking about putting a vision statement on a business card. I'm talking about truly being daring, Right. So when you look at Steve Jobs, as an example, um, when he built the most fantastic computer, he didn't stop there, right? He said, what if we went and changed the music industry? And then he didn't stop there. He said, what if we changed the phone industry? And then what if we changed the pad industry? Then what if we put all this on a watch, right? That what if mentality has to truly exist fundamentally in a leader because that leader has to accept that there are times that that's going to fail. When Amazon introduced Fire, it failed, right? But that's okay because two months later, Echo was in people's houses with Alexa. And suddenly people are talking to a box in their room. But it does. So the biggest element is having the vision. That vision means that you give yourself the license of failure. That's at the leadership level. Then throughout the company, people have to be given degrees of freedom. 
for experimentation. So if I had to put one word on the principle, it's really around the what-if culture. When what-if stops, everything stops because you're just producing product to sell at scale. And that's, those are the companies that may have a long, you know, in, in Provoke, I talk about the uh, sort of the long tail. They don't go away right away, right? BlackBerry is still there. Although I seem to only think that government is using it for whatever reason, the rest of us have moved into the swoosh mode of using an iPhone or other phones. So that's just a little bit about the top-level uh, principles. Interesting you should mention what if. I can remember uh, HP commercial that ran mm-hmm. quite some years ago. And I can remember the commercial. This, it was a Saturday this and this executive from HP was uh, just finished a shower and, and he had a towel wrapped mm-hmm. around his waist. He's coming down the steps and he had this mm-hmm. idea and he said, what if? And so you have to yeah. ask yourself, HP had what if? And they had the, uh, I guess, the sh- you know, the, the shed in the back. What happened? Yes. Well, HP came from two guys in a garage and Lou Platt, who was the CEO of HP prior to Carly Fiorina, was a very good friend of mine, and we were board members at the SETI Institute, uh, the Astronomical Institute. Um, So I'm deeply familiar with that company, and that company is actually a perfect example because it started from the what-if. And during Lou Platt, that was the culture that he promoted. He was an engineer first, and uh, engineers by default, if you think about what you do in engineering, right, and in science, you test hypotheses, right? You say, what if this? You go do an experiment, see if it works. If it fails, you do another. In fact, what if is the principle of scientific thinking. But what happens in the corporate dominance, the focus becomes revenue. And when it's revenue, it says that thing that I know that it works, I'm going to sell. So if you look at companies that resisted more recently, when cloud computing came out and just for the listeners, for those who may not be as familiar with cloud computing, it effectively takes whatever compute power you have at your desktop and puts it at a sharing service you can refer to as the cloud, which is available to all users and access to the Internet. When cloud computing emerged, there were certain companies that said, absolutely not. I am never going to put my data in the cloud, right? It started out, the biggest user of Amazon's AWS was New York Times, because New York Times said, look, I can put my archives in the cloud. Archives are not dangerous, right? But then suddenly other businesses realized, my God, if during Christmas I have so much volume, does it make sense for me to go and buy millions of servers? Of course not. So, but the pushback from Microsoft, from IBM, from HP, from all these mega players was huge because it represented a forced change in their business. Because remember, in the cloud, you pay for use, you, gave, you pay for as much as you use, which is a very different model. I remember when I had my startup and I had to buy a 100-user hardware system when at occasion I had maybe three engineers on it. So the amount of money I wasted on hardware, on licenses, on maintenance was off the charts. But the companies that resisted were those that felt that their business was going to get sacrificed. And those who resist have to then go very fast when they're forced to catch up, right? And then parallel, think about Amazon, who created this whole thing. And as many of the uh, listeners may know, Amazon AWS started as an experiment. Amazon had some spare servers. 
And one day, 10 years ago, they said, what if we kind of make these available for everybody? Let's let Linda and Darrell, you know, through the Internet, get on our servers. And then let's give a piece of our server for them to use. That became the biggest, one of the biggest movements in technology that created the genesis of cloud computing. Had it not been up to Amazon, it is possible we would have never had it because the companies that protected the business wouldn't have let us come there. Fortunately, the likes of Microsoft and IBM have evolved and um, adapted and everything is fine, but that's kind of what happens when you resist disruption. Wow. You know, back in the day when I was just out of Seton Hall B School, I uh, started working for Xerox as a copier salesman. And this was 1981. Mm-hmm. And I walked into the demo room uh, in Morris Plains, New Jersey for Xerox. And I saw this terminal with all of these mm-hmm. little icons on the screen. And mm-hmm. it, it, it had this, this, this device that you could put in your hand, which I didn't know it was a mouse, but it's called a mouse now. And mm-hmm. I went to my manager and I just said, wow, I really love this system. What does it do? He said, oh, it's a giant word processor. It does all of these great things. It's called the Xerox Star System. And I just said, yep. wow, will I be able to sell this? He says, well, first you got to prove that you can sell copiers first, Darrell, because uh, I was in the, the business products division. But watching right. how Xerox had this technology way back when. Imagine. What and, if? And they blew it. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, that's the thing. I mean, it's very sad if you look at Xerox, particularly if you look at Kodak, let me ask you a question, Darrell. Why is it that Kodak, that was the most experienced photography company, couldn't imagine itself having an Instagram-like platform, right? Right. Because it had every, it understood photographs, right? Yes. In fact, I could argue that imagine if I can get my really bad photographs to, to a service that improves it and puts it on the platform. Kodak really believed that people are still going to go to their drugstore and the physical asset of holding a photograph on paper in your hand is so so much more superior than the digital, that it didn't imagine itself to own something that it was so suited to own. Another example, Amazon versus Barnes & Noble and Borders, right? Borders, which is gone, Barnes & Noble, which is barely surviving, these entities really didn't believe that people could actually buy books online. So now they've become where we go to figure out how much is it to never buy it there, to go to Amazon to buy it there, right? And they're taking a super long time realizing it, and they're barely playing. So what do they do? They come out with, here's another digital reader, right? Am I going to really need a Nook? Maybe not. My Kindle works really well, right? right? Or they'll try to put something on the website. So think about Amazon Fresh versus Walmart and Target. Think about Amazon versus everybody else. The rate of change of disruption is really high. And used to be in technology, Durrell, that we had very wonderful, luxurious timelines, just like you mentioned, with Xerox. Yes, you could have sold printers, I mean, uh, copiers for a very long time. And in fact, Remember that Xerox became the brand name for copier, right? That's right. It wasn't that I have a copy machine. I have a Xerox machine. And even when you have a Fujitsu, people call it a Xerox. Right. (laughs) It actually did the branding super well. But when you hyper-brand, when brand becomes your business, you lose your business. 
And if you look at the trademark of companies that evolve, so you look at Apple and you say there's a tra- trademark of the hardware. Then there was a super cool Mac laptop. Then there was a super cool iPod. Then there was a super cool iPad. Then the phone. Notice that the brand is constantly changing. Yes. When you protect brand yes. as your business versus innovation as your business, you will die. It's only a matter of when you will die. But that disrupt or die is the title of many of the talks that I give. And, you know, when I, when I was sitting with Corning in northern New York, and I was asking them, you're a glass company. I can imagine glass being the surface for everything. Yet there's such a focus to generate Gorilla Glass for Apple. What if Apple generated its own glass? This was about four or five years ago, and the answer was, well, they never will. And I said, what if they do? They never will. But they did. <laughs> there goes your customer. That's right. So, That's you know, right. There, there's no point. And, and what happens when you protect brand, you take talent within a company, and instead of letting them truly proliferate into edges, into new things, you're forcing everybody to micro-innovate within the same product line. And as a result, you either lose talent from the company and you certainly don't gain talent as rapidly as a hot company like Facebook or Uber or ABMD do today, right? right? It's really hard to tell a kid out of college to now go and join a 100-year-old company because they're basically, their horizon is, in fact, somebody who's recently told me, oh, my God, Google is such an old company. Ow! <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, it's 15 years. Facebook is now 10 years. Facebook is considered to be an old company. So if you're a 100-year-old company, if you're a GE, an IBM, a Corning, you've got to really think carefully about what role you're going to play in sort of shaping innovation into the future. What are some of the obstacles that you see as a very dynamic, provoking con- industry consultant of, of getting companies to wake up and, and to realize that we need to change? Yeah, so... Um As far as obstacles, I would say the biggest obstacle is fear of failure. Big companies tend to do things really, really well. What they do is flawless. And they're very concerned, what if I do something and I fail, either in uh, in it itself or um, in developing the product that people want. So in that dimension, if you take cloud computing, Amazon was by far smaller than any of the sort of the tech players at the time. But it had the what if and came out with cloud computing. Everybody else resisted because they were afraid. And unfortunately, for years, they they continue even to this day lagging behind. So one is fear of failure. The other one is um, a little bit lack of visionary leadership. Because traditionally, we put leaders in companies because of their leadership prowess, because of their experience, right? Sometimes they actually dismally fail, but we don't know how to not have them there, right? We read about, you know, these stories and we go, my God, why is this person there? In smaller companies, there's, there's a real lens on performance, not just in revenue, but are you really gaining market share? Are you innovating? So the second element is just sometimes lack of the what if, lack of division. And if you at the top leadership don't have it means your board doesn't have it and it just filters all the way down so if you take elon musk right 
Tesla is not a car. Tesla is a digital experience. It's not even that. It's a battery company. No, it's a power company, right? And if you sit there with Elon Musk, you're talking about SpaceX and, and, and you know, sending things to other planets. And you're talking about a Hyperloop train that's going to go from San Francisco to L.A. in 35 minutes. And you're going to talk about this. Does that mean it exists? No. But if I were working in those companies, I'd be inspired, right? Because I'm looking at something that's so magnificent. That's what technology is. Technology isn't bringing people in and micromanaging them to put minor changes in a product that makes no difference to sell more of it that doesn't change the world. And so um, the second one is uh, the lack of vision. And the third is really what direction, what is the role of the company? Is a company simply there to just develop products? Or is it, is it there to reshape your thinking? So think about a world, Darrell, that Apple wasn't in it, right? Close your eyes and think about no Apple. Right. Mm. What would that be? All your experiences of how you're interacting with a device, the touching, the swishing, Siri, how you have evolved anthropologically as a human being is very much a function of what it has done for you. So technology isn't just about a product. It shapes thinking. It shapes society. So I think the biggest element of the companies that resist change and disruption is that they're actually, and if I turn around and say, okay, now close your eyes and think about HP not being here. Maybe your eyes won't be closed that long, right? Right, right. So that's really the difference between the companies that move us, the companies that don't move us. Another example is... Airbnb. You know, about four or five years ago, before there was Airbnb, I was sitting with the world's largest hotels with their executive managers and talking about how human experience has to start getting reflected. And I said, look, as a person that spends 300 nights a year in a hotel for the last 20 years, I'm sick and tired of going to a hotel site, looking at photos that are 20 years old. And trust me, the room looks much older when I enter the picture that was there. And it doesn't give me a sense of where I am. Wouldn't it be cooler if you made it more personable? And, of course, they said no. And I said, you know, we're getting into this world where you're going to have people letting other people stay in their property. And like, absolutely not, Linda. You're delusional. In comes Airbnb. It's valued at over $50 billion. It has zero asset expense. It doesn't have to pay a building. It doesn't have workers. It doesn't have to buy food. Right? None of that. Because it thought about the the opportunity differently. And if you don't disrupt, you don't think about new opportunities. You think about the same thing the same way. Wow. Linda, believe it or not, this is probably the fastest 26 minutes I've ever experienced, and I am sitting on the edge of my chair. Um, we have a couple, we have actually like one and a half minutes left. What, sure. what, what thoughts would you like to leave with our audience of, about your book, Provoke? why the global culture of disruption is the only hope for innovation? So my, my hope is, first of all, about the stages of resistance. Certainly the individuals can go read it. And I think um, it's a good read just to know the five stages, because if every person can move people through those stages of resistance, they can push the envelope forward. But I fundamentally really believe in the power of the individual and the individual's mind and their thinking. And I'd like to invite everybody to participate in this and not be bound with what they're able to or not to do. Um, Let's just remember that the biggest companies today 
whether it's Uber, Airbnb, Apple, Amazon, it all started with one individual asking the question, what if? And I fundamentally believe that that person can be anyone, anywhere in the world at any time. Wow. So that's my hope for the reader to be encouraged to think in that dimension. Well, I tell you, I, 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 you, you have certainly inspired me. And um, real quickly, what's next on the horizon? Do you have another book um, that you're planning? Yes. Uh, my other book, which will come out mid-September at MIT Press, talks about the technologies of the Internet of Things and the future emerging connected world. We're entering a world where your driverless car will be talking to your drone, talking to your toaster with your Fitbit, with your doctor. And the new future world that we're entering is a very, very different world. So our book really sort of addresses this uh, evolution and sets the vision of where we're headed. So it's been an incredible journey writing it. I am looking forward to having you back on the program to to I'd love to, to. To, to talk to talk about this 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 book that you're coming up with. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are here with Miss Linda Bernardi, the author of Provoke: Why the Global Culture of Disruption is the Only Hope for Innovation. Linda, thank you so much for coming on the program, and we're going to have to have you back before you have the new book out because there's so much more to talk about. Provoke, will you come back on the program? I would love to. You just asked me when. <laughs> Okay, consider it consider consider it done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ladies Thank and you. gentlemen. Thank you so much. That wraps it up for this weekend on Leadership with Darrell Gunter on WSOU eighty nine point five FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Remember, leadership begins with you. <laughs>